Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 15th, 2015. This is episode 1661 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Thursday, so usually on a Thursday I do a listener call-in show. You know, I'm having a really busy time. I'll just put it to you that way. I have, am short on, on on hours every day, let alone minutes, uh, during this period from getting ready for the next event, having to go next week and teach at Nick Ferguson's Earthwork Workshop, and a lot of other stuff that we have going on right now where we're transitioning some things on the farm, dealing with baby ducks and all. So I'm short on time, so that's one reason I'm going to do a, sh- a non-call-in show today, because they take about two hours longer than any other show that I do. The other reason I'm going to do a non-call-in show today, though, is I feel a need to do so as a follow-up to yesterday's interview with Nicole Foss. Um, Nicole and I agree like 99% on the problem, but the conclusions drawn are a little different. Um, and I'm going to explain those differences today, and I'm going to explain why I actually think Nicole is one of the most brilliant women I've ever had the pleasure to meet and why I think it's a great idea to keep listening to her. But when it comes to the extrapolation of what you need to do with that information, you need to listen to yourself. And you need to understand the evolution of what happens when really smart people, when brilliant people, start to dissect the problems of humanity. Um, It leads to a certain progression and you can spot a person that's really smart and really got it figured out, but just hasn't been in that world long enough to actually figure out some of the things that society does to adapt to these problems or to circumvent these problems, or when catastrophic things do occur, how it's not quite the way you thought it would be. I think that's where we're at there. And I think a lot of you people, frankly, are freaked the hell out after that interview. I've got a lot of freaked out emails. I just got a mortgage. What do I do? Pay your mortgage and relax. Okay. Um, and we'll get into all that in just a bit, but I just felt it was necessary given the state of things. And there's some things that you don't know unless you read the notes about yesterday's interview that I'll tell you when I get to the main topic of today's show. Before that, as always, let us take care of our sponsors. They do so much to help take care of you and help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week by supporting the show. Sponsor of the day number one today, the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel. And uh, right now, he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find: pasta sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper sun-dried tomato and rosemary. Uh, Soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out HarvestEating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. 
Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. And you know, those sponsors do help support this show, and they do help me be able to do what I do. But you know what helps me even more than the sponsorships? The Member Support Brigade. I mean, that's that's really how we pay the bills around here. So consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you like this show and what we do and you value the information and the, and the, and the, and the teaching that we bring to you on a weekly basis. Uh, if you do that, you can help make sure that we're always here to do that for you. And I don't ask for charity. I don't take donations. The MSB is an extreme value. Both of the uh, companies you just heard from, Harvest Eating and Backwoods Home, do discounts for MSB members. And more than 60 other companies do discounts for MSB members. I'll be bringing you two new discounters this week. I'm going to try to get that done for you tomorrow, uh, along with producing a, a, a listener uh, expert council member show for you. If not, I'll have to get it done on Saturday when I have time to do just that, because it takes some time to update the MSB. It really does. But I got two new great discounts coming for you. Isn't that awesome that I keep adding more and more discounts? That's how this thing pays for itself. I decided when I put this together that I had to have a sustainable business, and that meant that my customers had to get a value out of it that exceeded what they put into it. It seems like it's an impossible thing to do, but if you take a look at the MSB, I think you'll see I've done just that. Just click on members on the survivalpodcast.com to learn more. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a service discount. Just email me with TSPC service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences before, not after you join. Okay, um, with that wrapped up, let's take a real quick look at the history segment. i got two for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have Why the Bakers Bake No Bread and Our Lord of the Attic Hiding Religion in Plain Sight. I'm going to read Why the Bakers Bake No Bread. New Amsterdam bakers have gone on strike. The governor has set the price of bread and the quality for the price. It is difficult to understand exactly why the bakers are baking no bread. But it must be one of two reasons. One, there is not enough profit in making bread for the prices the governor has set. Or the bakers are asserting their right under the Baker's Guild to negotiate a better formula for setting those prices. The strike goes on for two weeks until the governor raises the price by 10%. Free market baking will not take precedence until 1801 when the New York bakers will strike for the right to charge whatever the market will bear. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, this is more complicated than it seems. 
In the old Dutch world system, bread was an essential, and bakers felt a duty to produce it for the community, just as producing water and electricity for the community is essential in modern day. In fulfilling their duty as bakers, they felt that the government owed them some commercial protection, locking out competitors and providing for reasonable profit. But the variable cost of grain and the unreliable money supply, especially beaver pelts, made New World regulation nearly impossible, So the bakers went on strike. They seem to be striking for better regulation, not for free market prices. Oh, no, not that. In the modern day, I bake my own bread from scratch once a week. I'm not the best baker in the world, but no baker strike or trucker strike or grocery strike would stop me from making what I need. I have developed skills over the years, and I practice those skills just in case. And frankly, I like fresh-baked bread. You know, to me, what this is all about is just this ongoing cabal between industry and government, where the, the market runs to government and says, please, please fix things for us. And eventually, you make the deal with the devil long enough, the devil double-crosses you, and the deal isn't what you want anymore, and then you and the devil fight about it and come to a new agreement and a new understanding. We call that a guild, and we call that a strike, right? Um, but what, what essentially was being said here is, let's say you wanted to just set up your own bakery and start baking bread. Well, you can't do it. There's only room for so many bakers, and you and if you do, you have to sell for a certain price. Now, you'd think that maybe the problem with that would be you can't charge more. That that's what you'd think. Like, well, then why can't I, you know, bake, bake like some really badass bread and charge more? Well, the real problem is you can't charge less. The market can't find the balance point of where the profit is sufficient to maintain the quality the customer wants. And it also assumes that everybody wants the same thing. If I want really badass sourdough and all you want is Wonder Bread, we shouldn't pay the same price. We really shouldn't. But Alex is right. So producing bread was akin to a public utility at this time. I want you to think about that. So there's, there's limits to how much a company can charge and how little a company can charge for things like water and electric even in places where so-called competition is allowed. The thing about like so-called competition in the electrical space is you still have one electric company that really does everything, and everybody's just reselling their product. So it's an illusion of competition, though it does create a competition for who can sell for less. It does do that. Because if you're here and you have something like Amigo Energy in Texas, you pay a lot less than TXU. But TXU still is the one, in the end, that's getting the money for the power. So when you look at the way they actually reduce cost, it's not about the underlying energy. It's about the administration of running everything. Now that seems to me like a case for decentralization. If there's that much that can be leaned out and you still have a bureaucracy, what could be done if we really decentralize things like energy and food and water and the basic needs of humanity and allowed for local production and local development and free markets? That's just me, though, because I'm a crazy redneck. Anyway, with that knocked out, let's get into the uh, the main topic of today's show. So one of the things that you guys, unless you read the blog yesterday, the show notes that go along with the, the show, didn't know is that the interview you listened to with Nicole was everything she said and not quite everything I said and not quite exactly what I said because there was some weird thing going on with the connection uh, between here and New Zealand where she was with a huge delay. And what that caused was when I was done and I pulled it into the timeline to edit the audio and put the music on it and all that, um, 
I wasn't there. There were all these blurbs where you could see her talking, and everywhere I talked was an empty space. And occasionally there'd be a little bit in that empty space, and it would sound like... So I had to, when that interview was done, break all those spaces apart, listen to the last couple of minutes of what she said, listen to the next couple of minutes of what she said in response to me, re-record my part, and put it in. So that right there changed things a little bit, and I posted a disclaimer about that for journalistic integrity. I don't think most people would realize that happened. I think I did a really good job. I think with my memory, it was at least to the same point, or it wouldn't have made sense, but I want people to know when something like that happens, because without that, you don't have integrity. And if somebody finds out that you lied about that, then it blows all your integrity everywhere. So I put that out, and I'm now verbally saying it today. I would have put it verbally in the yesterday show, but by the time I got done, I mean, I lost so much time. I lost three hours yesterday uh, of time that was supposed to be doing other things to get ready to leave next week to, to fixing that problem. The other thing was she had a time constraint where she had to be able to get her kids to school. And what that meant was once I realized like what a talker she was and how long she was going, if I would have engaged every place where there were disagreements, then the interview would have went two hours, which normally would be fine, but not when you're trying to work with somebody who had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to give you an interview. Next, I don't debate my people that come on the show. I bring them on to present their view. I might present contrarian views, but I really don't like to get into big debates with people anyway, especially when we agree on so many things. Okay, So all of these things added up to a point where you got a very one-sided interview yesterday. Um, and, and frankly, good, because if it would have been a two-hour-long interview, I don't know if I could have fixed it after the technical problem we had. But the issue that I have, and the reason I'm covering this today, is I did hear from so many of you that are like freaked out now and don't know what to do and, and, and what have you. And my only concern with doing is this is that you know it, it looks like I'm saying all these things that she's wrong about while she's not here to defend herself. But I don't really feel that she's wrong. I just feel that she's in a, a typical evolution of a person, and I, I mean this sincerely, who is absolutely brilliant, uncovers these problems, and then realizes their full scope to such a, a, a state they can't see anything but it has to fail. And they have not yet been in that state long enough to start realizing, well, okay, I was sure of that five years ago. And here we are today, and it's still going. And I think that people at that point, either they have to transition, and that's what I think will happen to Cole because she's so freaking smart, or they just stick to it and keep saying the same stuff over and over again and figure sooner or later they'll be right and then they'll be justified. Or they become very bitter people. Uh, James Howard Kunstler springs to mind. Um, you know, if you would have listened to this guy in 1995, there is no way in the world we would ever all be sitting here in 2015, 20 years later. And he seems to me, and he's a smart guy too, and I agree with him on a great deal of things. Uh, not as much, I think, as Nicole, but a great deal of things. But to be becoming very, very bitter that the system's continuing, because there's another trap people step into when they do this. They start to realize how unjust all of this is, how incredibly parasitic it is for human beings on other people, and the tremendous environmental damage we're doing. And as much as they fear this, they also see it as a reckoning when it happens. It'll, it'll, it'll stop this, this, this massive harm. And society will be forced to adapt. So they actually begin to like loathe it for fear, but they also embrace it as like, if we can make it through this, everything will get better. 
And then when it doesn't come, they get really angry. So it's one of those three things that, that happens. And for Nicole, I think it'll be more of an evolution of understanding of how shifts are absorbed and transformed into new things. Humanity is an organism in totality. An organism seeks survival, and our humanity, our giant organism of humanity will shift through this. We will get through this, and it will cause radical shifts. Understand that everything I'm saying counter today is not for you to believe that everything will be hunky-dory, and you know it'll be like the 1950s all over again, and everybody will be happy, and it will just go on the way that it's always been. That's not what I'm saying. Anybody that's listened for any length of time knows that, but I got new listeners all the time, so I have to be clear about that. Probably should have said this in the beginning, but if you're listening to this show for the first time today, you might want to go back and listen to one earlier one just so this show really makes sense, because this is basically a continuation of yesterday's show, uh, which was an interview with Nicole Foss, episode 1660. All right, so let's start out with the progression that happens when really smart people discover society's problems. They usually begin with a single issue. For Nicole... This issue was peak oil, and that's a very common one. People start to realize that, hey, this black stuff that comes out of the ground must be finite in nature. There can't be so much of it that we can just keep burning it at this rate forever and not have a point where the supply contracts. So they look into it. They find out there's a real thing behind it. It's called peak oil. They discover it. They learn a whole bunch about it. They read books. They read commentary. They do research. They look at, because we're talking about smart people here. We're not talking about reactionaries. We're talking about people that are either street smart or academic smart or a combination of the two. Okay, So they go at this with a researcher's systems thinking. And they, they extract everything they can from it, and they start to realize how dire that situation is. And as they realize the dire nature of that situation, the single issue exposes a myriad of other issues. Well, what happens if we end up in a peak oil situation uh, to healthcare? What happens to the economy? Okay, you start looking at what happens to the economy, then you say, well, what state is the economy in independent of peak oil? And then you learn about fractional reserve banking. You start looking at the liquidity. You realize that the whole world owes trillions of dollars to really nobody. You start to realize how money is created. You start to realize that we have spent the money of our grandchildren before they were yet born in, in, this, in this hologram of a financial economy that we have. And you start to realize the true underpinnings of that problem. You start to look at demographics like we talked about yesterday. And you realize that the birth rate alone means a population decline. And then you realize that if we have a population decline in a system that requires perpetual growth, well, that doesn't work either. And it's like starting to pull a thread. And at, at some point, even though you know you're destroying a tapestry, you can't stop. You're compelled. What's, what, I've got to unravel the whole thing. And you become wrapped up in it. And because you're intelligent, you see all the connections. You try to explain connections to people, and they can't understand them. I know this from personal experience. Okay, um, And you, you start to realize how scary this all is. And you start to say, I owe it to people that don't understand it to explain it to them. And you get a little bit of Messiah complex. You go out and you start telling people about the problems. 
And as you're telling people about the problems, then you start getting feedback from people. And every bit of feedback that you get, because you're speaking to the open-minded and open-eared, tends to confirm your beliefs because you now have people out picking data that matches what you're saying and sending it to you. Okay? So you start to really get the total picture. And then you realize to yourself, holy shit, society is duct taped together. This has to break. This has to fall apart. And your timeline shrinks dramatically from a couple decades to a couple years to maybe a couple months. And you become convinced that is the case. And you go on an obsessive zeal to collect more data and collect more data. And even the data that seems to counterindicate what you've said, when you totally understand the problem, you actually see that data confirming what you've said. Because what you've said is true. It's just a timeline that's kind of out of out of whack. But then time passes. Time passes. The end doesn't come. And only at that point where you've been doing this long enough and you've been into this world long enough and you've you, you, you've understood the problem for long enough that the, the timeline of lasting has exceeded your comprehension of what was possible does your thinking evolve and you start to say to yourself, well, how is this being sustained? How is this being maintained? And then you start to say to yourself, well, what could they do next to maintain this? That is the evolution of, of, of a smart person exposing these problems for themselves. And that's why almost everyone ends up at a point during that evolution where they're sure it's going to happen soon, 10 years or less. right? And it, it, it takes a lot for that person to even put 10 years on it because there's this aching fear inside of you that this is going to happen. Okay? Um, so th what we really need to do then is start examining the issues that, that, that people you know, examine, that, that go into this, are concerned with, and saying, what is the adaptation that society can use to deal, deal with that? And what you've convinced yourself is there isn't one, but yet somehow they keep doing it. Okay, so let's start with peak oil. Is peak oil real? Absolutely. There is no doubt that peak oil is real. Is it the total catastrophe that the, the peak oil crowd wants to make out that it is? And the answer is no. There's a couple things about the peak oil crowd that you can generally say are true. That doesn't mean everybody that's, that, that, that this is a big issue for or is concerned about it a great deal fits this mold. But in general, most people in the peak oil world are environmentally minded individuals. And many of them, if not most of them, are very much in the belief of this whole carbon is going to kill us all and global warming thing. And because of that, there's a piece of them, as I said before, that wants it to be true. Because if you're really concerned about global warming due to burning too much oil, but you believe in peak oil, then you don't have to worry because the problem will fix itself. You see what I mean? Because this, what we well, if you want to fix too much carbon due to burning too much oil, we need to burn less. So if there's a peak, we're going to naturally burn less so we don't have to worry about it. But somehow that feedback loop just doesn't connect for people. And, and then the reality of why they're concerned is that they know that they're not right about peak oil in totality. 
because they realize, well, we have 135 years of known natural gas reserves to keep everything the way that it is right now energy-wise. That's just natural gas. That even if, if oil goes to a peak, there's still a shitload of oil. And every time they say, well, it'll be too hard to get to, we develop a new way to get more of it out of the ground, and they get angry about that. Okay? But it, it, it doesn't change the fact that this isn't the imminent emergency that everybody wants us to believe that it is. And I believe there's a, a, a level of ecological perception biased within that movement that if we make people believe, it's, I think it's unintentional, but there is a component that if we make people believe this, then we'll have to develop all these non-carbon producing technologies, which by the way, I very much want to see developed. I think there's limits to what we can do, though, and how fast we can do it. And for now, oil, coal, and gas are what we have, and we are not running out of the three combined anytime soon, period. And, and I'm going to tell you that I'm going to get some very angry emails and comments over that statement alone. Because inside this, this belief, uh, this peak oil belief system, there's a major contingent that if you ask them, do you want this to be true?, They'd truthfully say no, but if you said self-examine and go deep, and is there a part of you that wants this to be true, a large group of them would have to say yes. And when it doesn't happen, you know, when you're when you're counselor in '95, convinced it'll be by the end of the millennium, and the millennium comes and goes, and another decade comes and goes, you either have to evolve your thinking or you get bitter. I'm just 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 telling you the truth here. And sometimes speaking the truth makes people angry. We say it anyway. So one of the main places that people go from there is to the, the world of finance and debt and liquidity. Because if you understand peak oil, then you can't not see the connections to the economic system. So you have to examine the economic system to understand the connections. And when you start under examining the economic systems, you're like, holy shit, this is so much worse. So then... The, the, the article of faith moves from, well, this oil thing, I don't know how much longer it can really go on and how big's the top of the bell and maybe they'll find some more and there are these other fuels we can use and there is some, you know, I don't really know now when this is going to happen, but this, this is the thing that will stop the bleeding. This is the thing that will stop the, the rape of the planet. This is the thing that will stop, you know, but it's going to hurt when it happens, so we got to do something about it. So then you move into, the, like I said, debt and liquidity, which is what Nicole was talking about yesterday. And you say, is it a problem? Yes. But you need to understand that money's fake anyway. And I think a lot of people like they intrinsically understand that. Once you understand monetary creation, you know it's fake. But you, you don't really understand the totality of what that means. What it means is that the people that create the money can change the way money is created anytime they want because it's fake anyway. We, and what, what people say is, well, well, people will lose confidence in what have you. People will have confidence to the level that keeps them alive when it comes to money. I, I've tried to explain this to you guys before, but money is not wealth. Money is not value. The human beings in our society are the source of all real wealth. Okay, The underlying value of the wealth all comes from natural systems whether it's sunshine and wind, or trees, or minerals, or soil, or microorganisms, they're the baseline wealth. 
But we are the architects that take those resources, either responsibly or irresponsibly, or somewhere between those two worlds, and, and, and utilizes them to the point where we create a value addition to them and we create what we call an economy, an exchange. And we have all kinds of economies that have existed throughout history. Barter-based economies are not as common as we have been led to believe. Most really small hunter-gatherer commodities uh, communities were actually driven by what you would call a gifting, a gifting economy, meaning that the debts could never balance. So everybody always owed somebody something, but no one was ever going to be taken a task for the debt. The debt was more of an obligation to help someone else. So in a, in a, a barter-based economy, whether we're bartering goods for goods or goods for dollars, If I'm a knife maker and I make a knife and I set the value at $300 on my knife and you either give me $300 of goods or $300 of dollars and you give me the $300 and I give you the knife, no one now owes anybody anything. If I've issued a warranty with the knife, I am obligated to the warranty and nothing more. But the debt is done. If you need a knife and I'm the village's knife maker, so I take one of my knives and go here and you're under no obligation to pay for it immediately. And I don't even care if I'm the direct recipient. Basically, everybody in our little band has to have a knife for our band to function. And I'm the guy that knows how to make them best, so that's what I do. I don't care if your generosity is sent on to somebody that, that's a great hunter, and when that great hunter sees that I have a need for food, they give me some meat. You see what I mean? This is actually far more the hunter-gatherer economy than barter. Barter really started to come out when two bands came together and would, would then separate and, and not see each other again. Because then the exchange had to be value to value. So now we run our entire system that way. Okay? And that's, that's how that came to be. And then we evolved into that. But that's just one alternate economy. And when you start digging through all the potential types of economy, you start to realize that there is, there's adaptation that we can't even think of yet. If you told somebody about Bitcoin 15 years ago, this, that'll never work. I mean, you would have had a hard time finding anybody that would have thought Bitcoin could work. Is it infinite? Will it go on forever? Is it you know infinitely sustainable? I don't know. Probably not. Nothing really is. But I mean, is it good for 100 years, 200 years? I don't know. Probably not. Most forms of currency don't last that long. No, no American currency has lasted that long. The current dollars that we have today didn't take their true current form, depending on how you interpret history, till between 1971 and 1975. Not that, it's not that long, guys. It really isn't. And those dollars were, were changed in 1964. And those dollars were changed in 1933. And those dollars changed in 1913. And those dollars changed in about 1895. So actually, the, the, the phony charade money that we have today... The current version of the U.S. dollar has outlasted almost every other form of official United States currency, other than the Spanish pieces of eight, which was the first U.S. dollar, which was a Spanish silver coin. 
So as bad as it is, works better than what we've had. You start to understand all these things, and you realize the facade. And then you realize, okay, who benefits in a total collapse? And the answer is no one. It's like being a plantation owner and having all your slaves die. You don't really care about your slaves. But you have to care about them enough so that you can produce things that make the plantation profitable or it's not worth owning them. Okay? That's how the elite view us. We have to have enough housing and clothing and food and stuff to keep being the batteries in their freaking matrix. So no one benefits from a total collapse, and the elite can avoid a total collapse. So why would they allow it? So there'll be some sort of financial shenanigans. Now, again, this doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay. This doesn't mean that everything's going to be hunky-dory. This doesn't mean if you take your 401k account and put it on you know, autopilot and diversify into three different classes of investments and don't worry about it like the TV tells you, that everything's going to be super. This doesn't mean you can go buy a McMansion tomorrow and not worry about servicing that mortgage 10 years from now during some kind of a crisis. This doesn't mean there won't be another recession that will make the last one look like a walk in the park. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means it's not the end, it's an evolution. And that they will parasite humanity to the, to the breaking point, and the balance will be to not go past it. And this can be done a myriad of ways. We can remonetize society by creating a government-backed Bitcoin. We can remonetize society because the banks are stuffed with gold. Absolutely stuffed with gold right now. And Fort Knox isn't empty, in spite of what you may have been told. So we can go to a gold basis currency, which will immediately reestablish confidence in a currency. A gold basis. No, I didn't say gold back. A gold basis. A gold basis will be something like one ounce of gold allows uh, the economy and uh, the central banks to produce $10,000. That won't mean an ounce of gold is worth $10,000, and you have some gold in your house, and you got 10 ounces, and now you got $100,000 worth of gold. Uh-uh, and you're not going to be allowed to participate in the money production scam or the money printing scam, okay? You could do a hybrid of that. You have a, 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 a government-backed Bitcoin currency with a gold basis. And they would, you know how they would do that? They would just say, well, here's how much gold is in Fort Knox. This is how much money we can produce. So the gold backs, uh, an ounce of gold backs $20,000 in a fractional reserve system. No big deal. No big deal. And it's a psychology that makes the money have value. And if a person's survival depends on them believing something, most of them will believe it. And that's all you need to make an economy work is most people to believe it. So there'll be this hard, see, and I, I, it, it's hard for me to explain this because I know whenever I do, people are thinking I'm saying it's all going to be okay. No. But my, what I'm saying is there'll be a way through it for the smart person who adapts as the changes come and is forward thinking and has invested smartly in a diversified reality, which means business ownership, smart property ownership, okay? Skill development. There's a path through this, is what I'm saying. There's a path through a lot of things. There's a path through a jungle with a tiger in it that wants to eat you. But if you screw up, you get eaten by the tiger. Hope that makes sense. Okay, so then you get into this thing that we talked about yesterday. Our biggest difference of opinion with, with Nicole and I yesterday was mortgaging or renting. Okay, here's my take on mortgage. 
mortgage and renting are neither is the right answer. They are both what you would call situational strategies. Situational strategies. So the the stark reality is for most people you're not saving very much money by renting. So the concept where you could lose your house, well it's not like you're going to be shoving a thousand dollars a month into into a a hidey hole because you're renting versus buying. Either you're able to do that anyway or you're not doing it. So the the concept will, you know, if if you if you have to leave when you're a renter, will you leave flush with cash? Well, then you could be in the same situation with a house, but you lose it. Okay? So what's the difference? So what's the difference? The the difference is if I buy smart, if I put a substantial amount down, if I come in into from a, a position of financial strength, if I've created income from the property that I've also pocketed, and there's any underlying value of the property, even if I don't take out back what I put into it in just pure numbers, there's some equity harvest there. Well, what if nobody could sell a house anywhere? You know what? Here's the thing about that. If you get to that catastrophic level, let's say that no one, you can't sell a house, or a house that used to be worth $200,000, If you have cash and it's going to be sold on a market as a foreclosed property, it's sell for twenty grand, and not a rundown hole in Detroit. I mean, a nice house right now that people look at and go, yeah, it's worth two hundred grand. It, that that just worth it. What are they going to do? Foreclose on everybody's house? One hundred and thirty-one million occupied owner-occupied structures in America. You're going to, what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? You can't. In two thousand eight. 2009, during the mortgage crisis, all these tar bailouts and stuff like that, and refinancing and fixing mortgages. Like, you know why they did it? There was so many properties that they, they couldn't use them. They had to keep people in their homes by any means necessary. It wasn't even that bad compared to what we're talking about. So, if nobody can sell a house, what are you going to do? You're going to evict 130 million people? You're going to tell me you can't? Deport 20 million illegal aliens. I'm not making a value judgment on that. I'm just saying, you're logistically saying, we can't deport 11 million, 20 million, whatever it is, illegal aliens. Well, you can't evict 130 million people. Who's gonna, who's gonna do it? Who's gonna, who's gonna do the eviction? These the guys evicted too. Who's gonna do it? If you're that bad. So you, either you can't get that bad, or if you're that bad, then when you come, you know, you're talking, now if you're talking about that, and you're talking about that reality, what, You're talking about, you know, Mad Max level stuff. Like, like a guy that wants to evict you from your house is the least of your worries. See, it's the it's the not quite so bad that's actually more likely to end up with you thrown out of your house because they can evict two or three million people and they will, and they'll sit on your property and they'll wait and they'll take money from the government to to allow them to wait and not take reasonable offers and make the crisis last longer and eventually when the market recovers they profit out the ass. And then they claim to have paid back a loan that they gave to themselves. Sound familiar? Uh-huh. Last mortgage meltdown. Exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. So we can't sit around and not buy because something might happen that might cost us our property. Right? I mean, if you, if you really wanted to be a mortgage-based inv- uh, mortgage investor today, I'd say you buy a property... And you get enough equity in it that you can use it to borrow money on another property. You borrow more money 
to buy that property than you really need. You take that and pay off the first property. Okay? Then you do that again. And sooner or later, maybe you have 10, 15 properties. If this is what you want to do with your life, you can. I don't have time to do it, but it can be done. And if anything, you lose the last property. Everything else is paid for. Or two of six are paid for. So you can have these other four if you want to take them from me. Renting, you can't do that. So does that mean you should go out and buy a house tomorrow? No. And if somebody said to me, okay, so should people buy or rent? I'd say, it depends. And I actually think you can't answer the question any other way. Because it presumes that you know everybody's current wealth. It presumes that you know everybody's ability to service debt. It assumes that you know everybody's strategic reserves, cash and otherwise. It assumes that you know everybody's ambitions, everybody's skills, capabilities, and, and what they can do with a piece of property. It, it presumes to know that which cannot be known. And it presumes an equality that doesn't exist across the board. It presumes that everybody's the same age. I mean, when you look at do I or do I not go into mortgage debt right now, you have to make a self-assessment. Now, the reason people will make generalizations like don't do it is they know perfectly well what the average person does. The average person calls up a, a, a loan broker or what have you or fills out a form online and basically says, how much money can I get? And a letter comes back or an email comes back or the person on the other end of the phone says... You qualify for $325,000. Great. And if they have enough money to make whatever down payment has to go along with that, that immediately becomes their budget. And then they go out and they shop for a house for $325,000. They don't even look at a house for $150,000. They don't even consider the possibility that such a place that would serve their needs and make them happy exists. They just, and they, they, they want the nice, shiny house, so they buy into the bullshit. Well, in this state, you just can't find a house for less than that. Bullshit! Bullshit! Right? And they end up buying some, like, HOA nightmare, or they buy some flat apartment that, that you, you can't even fit a dog into, let alone a family, or whatever, for this extreme amount of money. And if that's the, the audience you're speaking to, then the concept of rent, don't buy, makes perfect freaking sense. But if you're talking to enlightened people that make logical, rational decisions based on the situation on the ground and their capabilities and their abilities, then you have to say, you have to make this decision for yourself. And there are a lot of options that you have as an owner of property that you don't have as a renter. Even if you go in default, it takes about six months for the bank to get you out the door under normal circumstances. It's a, during the mortgage meltdown, the people that did get kicked out and left, people moved into their houses while they were empty and lived there for two years before anybody did anything about it. The original homeowner could have done that. Seriously. They could have took their shit and left and then moved right back in. And if somebody said, well, why are you here? It's my house. Here's my ID. Here's my address. I'm paying the electric bill. Go F off. And they, the bank has to get back around to physically throwing you out. Now, in normal times, they can do that. Because they're dealing with you know a couple defaults here, a couple defaults there. They're flipping these houses back into the market. They're selling them either with uh, foreclosures or short sales or what have you, and they're turning them over. But in a crisis where the volume exceeds the capacity of the machine to flip them back over, they can't throw everybody out, and they didn't. And again, it wasn't even that bad. So 
The homeowner could actually sit in the house for six to nine months in foreclosure, saving money, paying nothing, and holding their breath until the last second until they're thrown out, and then move with six to nine months worth of, 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 of saved money. Maybe they have a $1,000 mortgage and they can only save $800. You know, you know, if you know you're in going to go in foreclosure, you don't give them the $800. Bucks. You keep it, and they throw you out. Now, I'm not saying that's ethical, but I'm saying there's times where certain situations will bend what we're willing to do ethically. You're going to throw me out of my house, okay, fine, Uh, then I'm going to save money. And now, if you're a renter, within 90 days, that landlord will have your ass in the street. And they won't go away. And they'll be there every day. And they will compel you to pay whatever you can pay. And they have a lot of options that a bank doesn't. Not to mention this. Okay, if I own my property, and there is debt on it, and I'm servicing that debt, then at least I know what that debt is. I'm the one servicing that debt. I'm the one that can adapt to the situation. What if my landlord, you're talking about like this massive, you know, 20 million houses going to foreclosure in one year, something like that. Do you think it's only going to be the property owners that live in their houses that are going to have this problem? Or do you think landlords might go into this problem? You think a guy that has 20 rental houses and people are still paying them when this liquidity crisis has become evident? Might not just keep your money and not pay and service his debt and stave it off. And, and, and instead of you getting six months from the bank, he doesn't. You never know it. And then all of a sudden one day they throw you out and you're no time to... Pre- See, there's a lot of things that it makes sense to be an owner. And there's a lot of things that make sense to be a renter. If you're 21 years old, you have no cash saved up, you don't really know what you want in life yet, no, don't go buy a house. Don't. Or build your little house, your little tiny house on wheels or something. You always have that, right? But situations and people and their stations in life change, and you have to adapt as you go on. The next thing is the can kick, right? So we talked about the can kick. I don't think it can go any further down the road. Like I'd be surprised if we even have a year left. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'll go out on a limb right now and say that's not happening. One year from now, the world will not be in complete and total financial breakdown. It might be in a deep recession, I don't know. Okay? But it won't be like the, the peak oil hits, the liquidity crunch hits, there's no money left, everybody's destitute and poor, and Mad Max is running down the road shooting at people where there's no oil, but he has oil. Okay, that, That's not going to happen in a year. It just isn't. Just like I told you in the past, it won't be. It won't happen next year. I've been telling you that for eight years. Start to trust me a little bit here. All right? So there are, I have been blown away by what they were able to do with the can kick. The, the, the quantitative easing that was done, the, the volume of money that was, was, was just basically pumped in and disintegrated to eliminate bad debt was inconceivable that it would work. It worked. It worked. Now people want to say, nah, it didn't work. Well, are you still here? Okay. Do we still have a functioning economy? Yeah. Is anybody looking to be paid on those debts now? No. Well, they're all on the Fed's balance sheet, and the Fed, the Fed can change the balance sheet anytime it wants to. It can produce money anytime it wants to. Because <laughs> it's all fake. It's all fake. We have $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities. Yes, and it's a problem, but it's also all based on fake money. 
They will change whatever they have to change so that they can stay in control. And that means you have to keep the villagers at least alive and kicking. You have to keep your batteries charged up in your matrix. You can't get rid of them all. You can't afford to lose half of them. And the population is in decline in most of the developed world and will soon be across the globe. There will be less of us because we're reproducing at lower rates. And the more we become stable, the less we're going to produce. And it does lead to all other kinds of problems. I mean, when you start looking at population, you look at most of these unfunded liabilities revolve around things like Social Security payments, and you don't have enough people working anymore to pay into the system, to pay out of the system. It's a crisis. We've been through a lot of crisis before, and we can't not act. So is total collapse likely? It's not likely, and not for long anyway. If we do have a total collapse, it, it, it will be a vacuum that will swiftly be filled with something else. Doesn't mean that it won't cause lots and lots of pain. Doesn't mean that we won't have to radically transition as a society. It doesn't even mean that a lot of people won't die. They might. I mean, if, if it, if, if it happens the way that it could, just sanitation problems alone could result in massive epidemics and pandemics. I mean, it's not like everybody's going to freeze it if there's no oil. That might not be the problem. And we don't really know. So we all have to just say, well, what should we do? So if, you know, if we really don't know, and it could be worse than I'm saying, or it could be not as bad as I'm saying, we need to have a plan. And we need to plan for perfect, just everything stays together. We need a plan that we actually do well. If nothing goes wrong, we need a plan. If it's like a 10% failure, we need a plan for a catastrophic failure. We have to have all three. We have to live in our way, our lives in a way that's commensurate with that. Because the, the problem is that most people only plan for success. Everything that they look in the future towards, they think, okay, everything will be the same. I'll get my 10% rate of return, like my financial advisor says, and I'll retire at 59 and a half and start living on my money, and I'll defer Social Security until I'm 67. Then I'll take that and add that into what I'm doing, and I'll just sell the lake house, and everything will be great. Uh, that's a bad way to live. you know. I'll take out the student loans, just like Mom and Dad told me to, because I know I'm going to get a great job with my degree in bitterness studies, and, and then I'm going to buy a house, and I'm going to buy a Corvette, and uh, whatever. And it, it's terrible planning. The problem is many people that get into the preparedness mindset then begin developing a plan that only works if there's catastrophic failure. Like they've invested so much in preparedness supplies and in getting as far away from people as possible and as off the grid as possible and, and as self-sufficient as possible that when things don't go wrong, eventually they end up with very little. And we have to have a balance or we make erratic decisions. The first thing, and I think that Nicole would tell you every single thing that I say, she'd probably agree with about what to do, which is why I say we agree so much, and that's why I thought she was such an awesome interview. Number one, avoid toxic debt. School debt is the worst debt you could go into right now. They will garnish your Social Security check to get their money back for school debt. 
the, the value of degrees is going down while their cost is going up. That means you're funding a depreciating asset with debt. That is a terrible idea. And it's, it's not like funding a depreciating automobile with debt. That's one thing, okay? Because it's a five-year depreciation and a five-year debt servicing. You're talking 20, 25, 30 years of debt servicing for a degree whose value is continuing to decline. Now, somebody on the blog said, you know, well, then you might as well tell people not to buy a house either because the price of houses are going up. I can transfer a house. I can pull equity out of my house. I can give it to somebody else. If I own a home and I have equity in it and I become brain damaged, somebody can do that for me and use that money to help me out. Okay? If I have a degree in neuroscience and I become brain damaged due to injury, my degree is now worthless. It's fundamentally worthless because I had an injury. I can't transfer it. If I get a degree in marketing and then determine that I hate marketing, I can't say, well, now I would like a degree in economics, and I'll have to take one more year of school to do that, so I want to sell away the other stuff. I want to, I want to divest myself of the marketing stuff. I want to sell it to somebody. You can't do it. You can't transfer it. It's not liquid. You're financing an illiquid, declining asset with debt when you go into the student loans. Wages have increased, on average, about 2-3% to over the last 30 years per year. Right in line with inflation. Okay, For the last 30 years, when you total it all up, the cost of college education has gone up 1,107%. It's either 1,107 or 1,103, and it was as of last year. I can't remember which one, but just call it 1,100%. So, <laughs> if you really understand that, the, 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 the speed at which the two are pulling away from each other, the salary you can expect to make, and the cost of the degree that will supposedly get you the job, the, 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 the devaluation of a college education is extreme, and it will lead eventually to a student loan debt crisis. It absolutely will, because you're going to have a generation of kids that cannot pay their debt. You know what, though? In the end... They'll probably implode it somehow. But don't think they'll let you go. They, they, they won't arrest you. They're not going to put you in debtor's prison. I mean, Nicole talked about that yesterday. And there's some of the, like, you know, you're in contempt of court, so we throw you in jail for a little while so that you get scared enough to pay. Yeah, sure. What are you going to do? Throw up 20 million college kids that can't pay their loans in jail at one time? Who the hell is going to run society? When, when, you, when you start to understand it that way, you start to realize that. That can't happen, but it can ruin your life anyway. So you avoid toxic debt. Period. You figure a way around it. Do two years in community college and work. You know, and then determine if that's really what you want to go forward with. There's so many things you can educate yourself on, so many skills you can develop that don't require college. And college education is going to get here's what's going to happen. A lot of people that are spending all this money to go to college are going to be really pissed off about five years from now when someone can get an equivalent education for about $5,000 and never leave their house because that's what's going to happen. And when, when, when people start recognizing that that degree is actually more valuable because it required someone that was capable of doing the work, not someone that, that went to a place where they had so much support that they could almost get some of the work done for them. Just saying. We also have to buy below our means. Across the board. We drive a car that's less than we, we could really afford. 
We buy a house, it's less than we could really afford. If we are going to buy an education, we don't buy the most expensive education. We buy the most valuable education. We spend below our means. We spend below our means. So that way we can develop cash reserves. And that's where we go to next. We maintain cash reserves. We never totally wipe out our cash reserves. Even if we think in another couple of years I could save it all back up. Just maintain cash reserves. And that is a great reason to take out a mortgage instead of paying for cash for a house. If I have cash reserves that I could use to pay off my house and a mortgage, and I'm taking a tax deduction on the mortgage, then I'm very smart to maintain that mortgage, especially if it's easy to service. If I ever decide I want to get rid of it, I can just service the mortgage and bam, it's gone. Now, that doesn't mean I shouldn't pay my house off early. But what it does mean is if those cash reserves will go to zero or near zero to pay off the house, that's a bad decision. That's a bad decision. When I can get a mortgage with an interest rate of 3%, when real inflation is 45 to 5 I'm dumb for tying my cash up in the house. And instead of using income to service debt that is below the cost of inflation and taking a tax advantage while I do so and maintaining a liquidity based on an equity that underlies the value of the property and doing things to increase the equity and marketability of the property if I ever determine I, I want to exit. We have to avoid set and forget investing. People say, I don't time the market. You better time the market because the market times you. I'll tell you that right now. The people that run the show time you all the time. All these ups and downs and dips, they're making a fortune on. And that doesn't mean trading stocks on a daily basis. But that means when you see an imminent crisis coming, like 2008, 2009 was, if you couldn't see that punch in the face, you weren't looking for it, you get the hell out. You just get out of the way. And you just wait. Let all the bloodletting kind of die down, and then you go back in. You don't believe a financial advisor. He goes, well, look, after this crash, look how much the market went up, because they're ignoring facts. Like if a stock declines by 50%, it has to go up by 100% to get your money back. Anybody ever tell you that before? It's true. You don't believe me? Okay, stock's trading for $100. It gets a, it has a 50% crash in value. It's now worth what? $50. Okay, now it goes up by 50% from where it was. What's it worth? $75. It has to appreciate 100% from its floor to get back to where it lost half. So when they show you this little sheet and they say, well, stocks came back, but roared back to like 33% gain that you wouldn't have had. Well, I'm still in the hole, jackass. Okay? So we don't do set and forget investing. And when we look at a market and go, there could be a little upside, 2-3%. There could be major downside. But right now, there's no big return in this year. We're not going to make 10% of our money. Get out. Get out. Don't risk. Take a cash position. Right now, I would not be in the stock market heavily right now unless you're buying individual securities that you know why you're buying what you buy. The, the mutual funds right now that track the, the stock market index are a fool's game. They're a fool's game because the best you might do is pick up 2% by the end of the year and, and, and be about par for the year. Or you can know that it's safe. Now, That doesn't mean that sometime soon it might not make sense to go into well-diversified stuff again. 
But right now, there's no. John Pugliano told you the same thing. There's no upside in this market for you in the near term. So why be at risk of the downside? Well, my advisor said, yeah, get a new one. Call John. Seriously. Call John and see if you can work with him because he doesn't work with everybody. Um, next, never confuse education with school. This is the biggest lie that's probably been sold to the American people. That school equals an education. That a degree equals an education. Now, there's an education to be had in school. And most people with degrees have received an education. Okay? But it doesn't mean that the two are equivalent. That one does not exist without the other. You can get an education in so many ways today. You can learn how to do almost anything today on YouTube. Anybody that wants to could learn to do 20 new skills every year. Easy, without breaking a sweat. How much value do you have then? I mean, really, how much value do you have then? Continue to learn and develop knowledge and skills. And understand the two are not the same. Knowledge is things that you know. Skills are how to implement that knowledge and do things. The next, I really believe that anybody with 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 the enough gumption to make it happen should start and develop a business. I don't care if it makes you 20 bucks a week and that's all it makes you. You will learn so much by doing that. And you'll always have something that if everything goes to crap, you've already got it in motion. You can then go into further development with it. And you will probably find the first thing you do as a business will fail. So fail with it while you can afford to. You know, the, 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 the first stuff I did completely independently as my own was I sold long-distance service on the Internet. I don't really do that anymore. Though I do have a few sites out there, and I got a commission check for like 30 bucks not too long ago. But that obviously is not a good business to be in anymore. How much long-distance service really gets sold anymore when in a world where everybody has free long-distance on their cell phone? But I learned about sales and marketing online from doing that. And today, a lot of what I've done to build the foundation of this show, the way that I have, I learned back in the 90s from doing that. So start somewhere. And again, if you're going to fail or you're going to have a limited success, do it while you have a job and you can afford that. Or do it while, you know, one one of the spouses is employed, the other one's kind of a, a stay-at-home spouse, and starts just playing with and developing these different things until you figure out what really works for you. But develop something. Because you'll never fire yourself. I promise you. The next thing is, one of the things I really liked hearing Nicole say yesterday was social capital. She must have said it about six times. I, if, there was, if we were on video, you would have seen I smiled every time she said social capital. I think it's one of the most valuable things that people can develop, both from a brand status, branding yourself larger than your community and within your community. But there's eight forms of capital. And we all have it individually, and then we have it within our businesses and within our communities. We have experiential capital. We have material capital. Okay, We have cultural capital. And, and I, I, I can do a whole show on eight forms of capital, and I have, so... You know, go to go, go to Ethan. I think it's Ethan Rowland that wrote that. I'll, I'll put a link today and read the read the article on uh, Apple Apple something permaculture. 
Uh, I'll find it for you and put the link in and read about the eight forms of capital and understand them. And over at jackspirico.com, a lot of you guys ask me for business advice. Those that are new, um, I did a business podcast for a while. There's over 100 episodes uh, at jackspirico.com. I'll tell you that I use more colorful language in that than I do here. So if my language here bothers you, it's really going to bother you over there. But everything a person needs to know about basic marketing and business is there. And I did a whole series on the eight forms of capital. And then I did stacking those forms of capital. So go learn more about that. But develop your capital from not just a social capital and a financial capital, but what, but what, what cultural capital can you develop? And how, can, how do you know something's capital? If you have capital, it can be transformed into another form of capital. So social capital can be transformed into financial capital. Okay? Financial capital can be transformed into material capital. Not every one goes to the other one. Okay, there's there's things that kind of lock stuff in, but if it can't be transferred, if it can't be transferred for some other form of capital, it's probably not capital. So develop all eight forms of capital. Plan for both total collapse and completely, completely, totally continued normal. You have to plan for both. If you don't, whichever one you pick probably has a 50% chance of being wrong. Right, because Continued normal may actually be lots of little little collapses and shifts and things, and that's actually probably more what's likely to happen. You need to plan for resiliency in a shifting, changing world. That's what you have to plan for. And never fail to do the smart thing that's in your own best interest because something might happen. Because if I had listened to people that told me, oh, don't get a mortgage back in 2000, how screwed would I be today? Really? You know, because uh, there were people saying that back then. And then when we had these, you know, we had the, 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 the whole, you know, 9-11 came in and we had a recession with that. And then the following recession and everything started falling apart with uh, like the Tyco thing and all. Oh, my God. See, we were right. You know, whatever. Whatever. I just rocked right through it because we had good planning. And then in 2008, 2009, I was the guy screaming to get out of the stock market, but I also sold a house when everybody said you can't sell a house. Okay, well, I just did. I sold it in two days. Why? Because of thinking at a higher level than the average person does. Not because I'm smart, because I'm thinking. See, that's the thing. We've also been conditioned to believe that, that some people are smart and some people aren't. No. Thinking is a skill. Every skill could be developed. And every skill can be impaired. And the ability of the American people to think has been impaired at a massive level. The bands of Harrison Bergeron are here. You just can't see them. They're bands of, of, of radio and television waves that interfere with your ability to think. They're things that are seen as required, even though there's no law that says you have to do things. You have to go to Every child has to go to school. Well, every child needs an education. Doesn't mean that every child has to go to school, especially the way we define that. You know, everybody should go to college. Really? Who would do all the shit that you don't need a college degree to do if everybody went to college? Well, it turns out a lot of times people with degrees will do it when they can't find a job that supposedly they were going to get what they got their degree. So then they have a bunch of debt and a whole bunch of education that's not actually practical. So we have to start doing the right thing for us 
based on our understanding and interpretation and our best freaking guess. And not making stupid risks, but not being paranoid to the point of being paralyzed. Look, I guess my final thoughts for you is the world has ended before. And yet, we're all still here. There's been catastrophes in humanity's history that make anything that any living person has ever seen look like a day at Disneyland. As bad as it's been. And there's catastrophes that have happened right now all around the world that you've been insulated from because we live in a relatively stable society. And there are groups of people living in this country in poverty you can't even understand or imagine that feel trapped by it. But they really could walk out of it. But they can't think clearly enough to do so anymore. They've actually been convinced to stay in their cages. And all you can do to help those people is prove that it's not true. By living your life to its fullest. That's what we have to do. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't.
as we know it. It's the, it's the end, end of the world, world as we know it. And I feel fine.